If we aren't willing to show our vulnerability, first of all, we don't get the benefit of learning. We don't get the benefit of other people's input. Secondly, we are presenting a very wrong model to those who are looking at us, who are learning from us. <laughs> Welcome to a brand new episode of Starts at the Top, our podcast about digital leadership and change. I'm Zoe Ammer. And I'm Paul Thomas. On today's episode, we're sharing our conversation with Jane Eide, who's the Chief Executive Officer at Akivo, the Association of Chief Executives of Voluntary Organisations. Akivo was formed in 1987 to support civil society leaders through connection, skills and influence. Their members include the leaders of small community-based groups, ambitious medium-sized organisations and well-known, well-loved national and international not-for-profits. Jane joined Akivo as their CEO in May of this year. It was great to speak to Jane. I was learned so much when I talked to her and to get her thoughts on the challenges of being a leader in 2022 was a real treat. And Paul, it's almost 2023. Can you believe where the year has gone? Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? We're already in December. We're racing towards the end. The advent calendar is what, about halfway through? Um, You know, more than halfway through. Um, Did you get a chocolate one this year? No, I was very good. I avoided the chocolate advent calendar, but my kids do have them. Yeah, we go through the the, the ritual every morning of opening about five different advent calendars. Thank goodness only one of them has chocolate in. Um, but that's all good. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been a, a fast and furious year. It's had it had its um, ups and it's had its um, quite big downs. I know for a lot of us, there's been a lot of challenges in the year loss and um you know dearly missed people and and things like that but uh it's also been a very good and challenging year i think um challenging year for leaders um for sure but um one thing i do love ahead of christmas is the end of year lists and i quite eagerly anticipate and look through magazines and websites and look at the films of the year and um music of the year particularly music of the year and um, you and I often discuss music at the beginning and end of these podcasts, and I know we're big music fans. So um, I'm just going to pick out two things from this year that I've absolutely loved. Um, one is my sort of listen of the year, which is the Always album Blue Rev, which only came out in October. But honestly, if you check my not not Spotify um, wrapped, but my, um, my Apple Music uh, review of the year, I've sunk hours and hours into that album. It's so, so good. So well recommended, pure pop tunes, and it just doesn't let up. It's um, 40 odd minutes of of just uh, pure fist pumping joy. Um, And I also wanted to highlight, because I was thinking about films, but TV has been a huge, um, a huge, huge thing over the last few years, I guess, moving almost moving away from films. All the top actors want to be in, in TV. And that's Better Call Saul on Netflix, which is probably. I hesitate to say it loudly, but probably the greatest TV show I think I've ever seen. Um, Just utterly fantastic in every respect. So two things from this year that if you haven't uh, heard or seen um, from me um, to go off and listen to. Anything caught your eye or ear in 2022? Yeah, lots. Gosh, where to begin? There's been so much good stuff this year. Um, I absolutely love the Loyal Karna album, Hugo. I think it's such an interesting exploration of what it means to be mixed race and the process of becoming a parent when you're trying to navigate your own identity. So I'd really, really recommend that for anyone who hasn't listened to that. 
Um, and then a book that was recommended to me on Twitter, not a new one, but one I have really enjoyed is called Energy Flash um, by a music journalist called Simon Reynolds. It's about the history of dance music. It's a huge, chunky book if you're looking for something to occupy you through the Christmas period. Um, I learned lots from that as well. So highly recommended. Does it come with a Spotify playlist of all the bangers? It should do, shouldn't it? But he does recommend <laughs> really good tunes through it. And I have to say, I've been reading it with my phone in one hand, looking up tunes as I go. Oh, it's my favourite thing. Sunday morning with Uncut magazine, going through the reviews and just putting stuff on Spotify and listening to a whole bunch of stuff that I've never heard before. Fantastic. Before we introduce our interview with Jane, got a couple of things we wanted to talk about. You um, posted a blog last week, and I think it's a, a really important one. So did you want to just talk about that briefly? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, so I wrote a blog about what is the question, where are you really from, really means. And I was very much inspired by the terrible experiences that the, the founder of uh, Sister Space had at Buckingham Palace, which has obviously been all over the news, all over social media. Um, I read over the weekend that they've actually had to pause their work because of some of the threats that they've had, which is just horrific. And that in itself shows many of the, the, the challenges that we're facing in this increasingly public discourse that we're all having about racism and inclusion now. And it also shows how sometimes an incident can occur around an incident which amplifies and has sort of creates a seismic shock that makes a bad thing you know even worse in in many ways I mean the amount of trolling that that charity has had over the last two weeks is is just awful I happen to see some of it on my Twitter feed not from people I follow I have to say I was just looking up sister space and it's, it's awful. And I think we need to confront the fact in 2023 that we have a real challenge with this as a society. And I think that the way we talk about it is still so binary. We're still at such early stages with it. And we need to just own the fact that we need to get better at this. Yeah. Do you think it's do you think it's good that it is a discourse now? It's, you know, the, for, for many, many years, I guess. It wasn't tackled so head on. It feels like in the past few years, there are more sort of conversations around different areas of life, whether it's sort of TV, films, sport, music, all of these, all of these industries that are confronting it. Do you think it's, um, it's about time it was confronted more strongly in the, in the not-for-profit sector, for example? It has to be confronted and then it needs to be turned into action. And I think that is one of the challenges right now. Um, I think some organisations are making progress in that field. Uh, there's some way to go for other organisations. Um, and absolutely, we just need to make sure we're all committing to doing things differently and owning the fact that we we all need to improve in this area and then turning that into some really tangible things that we all need to to make sure that we do and hold ourselves accountable and hold each other accountable if those things are not done well, I think it was an important blog post to to write and it's on your website right so people can go and find it there and put a, a link in the show notes and you know we'd welcome anyone's thoughts and particularly if you're experiencing um anything like that at all 
um you know we can surely you know where the places are that you can go to but we can point you in the direction of people that you can talk to or pick up you know pick up a drop a zoe an email i'm sure she'd love to to hear from you and talking of um you know very sort of low level uh trolling um i think we just wanted to pick up on our last episode that we put out with michael wilkinson from rnid now this is the first episode that we've of the podcast that we've created with a transcript and we've had a lot of positive feedback on on that um you know thanks for making the, the podcast accessible one of the things that we found was it was quite tough once you put the the transcript up with the episode it's really hard unless you use an app that um that uh, prioritizes the transcript and it's really hard for podcast um admin um, admins to to see it so um we also had one instance of quite strong negative feedback about the lack of availability of a video version um because we put a video teaser out but we'd like to update you on that because that that sort of appeared on our timeline the day after the episode went out and it's led to what i think is a fantastic conversation um between michael and Spotify. Yeah, which was we were delighted to hear about. Um, and full credit to Michael and the RNID for taking all of this forward. Um, so what we've heard from Michael is, um, and his very sort of carefully considered response on social media, which led to a conversation with Spotify, who want to work with RNID to make it easier for podcast creators to add transcripts to their podcasts, which can only be a really good thing, and to make the podcast experience more immersive for deaf people. Um, so we were so excited to hear that development. Yeah. Um, and we'll keep you up to date with how that progresses. And thank you, for uh, Michael, for following up. Such positive news. So well done, Michael and team. So now for our conversation with Jane Ide, recorded just a couple of weeks ago. We are very excited to welcome Jane Ide to the podcast today. Jane Ide joined Akivo as their CEO in May 2022. She has most recently headed up creative and cultural skills, working to create fair and inclusive opportunities within the creative and cultural sectors. Before that, she spent four years as CEO of NAVCA, where she led the transformation of the national membership body for local voluntary sector infrastructure organisations in England. She has leadership and communications experience in both the voluntary and public sectors, having held senior executive and non-executive roles in the civil service and the NHS as well as an entrepreneurial background in the private sector. Jane, welcome to Starts the Top. Thank you so much, Zoe. Lovely to be here with you. We're so pleased to have you here today. And just before we kicked off, we were talking about how you've just coming up to uh, the six-month mark at, at yeah. Akivo, which is very yes, exciting. Congratulations. Well, thank you. As I, as I said to a few of our members yesterday, I haven't, I haven't actually passed my probation review yet, so I'm hopeful. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm absolutely loving my time here. Six months and three prime ministers so far, so <laughs> quite a record, it has to be said. Yes, yes. We'll try to make the next 45 minutes less eventful than that. that you deserve a rest by now. Yeah. And do we need to know if you've passed your probation? Can you let us know so that we can put an appropriate disclaimer <laughs> yeah, just, on, just on the episode? Just in case you need to take this down line, yes. Yes, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get Jane my name. Jane was CEO. <laughs> well, don't say that. Don't say that. I'm, hope, I'm, keeping, my I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Well, we're hearing very exciting things about what you're doing as the key base, so we're looking forward to 
digging into that. Before we do that, though, it was so interesting reading your bio and also having um, a look at your your career to date on LinkedIn. And also, I remember this a bit from our very first conversations back in the mm. day. You're someone who's very much worked across different sectors and gathered lots of different skills along that journey. Of all those many experiences you've had across those different sectors, which ones most informed the way that you lead and why? I think... Um... I mean, you're absolutely right, Zoe. I, I remember talking to a, a, a recruiter a few years ago and she was asking, she said, I, I don't quite understand your CV. And I thought, well, what do you mean you don't quite understand? And I finally, the penny dropped and I realised, and I said, oh, you mean because I've worked in lots of different places. I haven't stayed in one sector all the time. And she said, yes, exactly. And I said, well, you know, there's a thread that runs through everything, which is about communications, engagement, um stakeholder engagement building uh building campaigns and building the momentum to change things and actually i can trace that right back to my very first leadership role um wasn't at the most senior level uh but it was a, a role as part of a senior management team in what was then derbyshire ambulance service which is going back a long time it's going back to the days when every county had its own ambulance service there were 32 in the country and there's a whole long story about how I ended up working there. And I was I was the first associate director of communications there. But I found myself working in an organization with um which 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 kind of gave me all the different elements of what I think I've then carried forward in my leadership journey. I was working with a very um charismatic, very inspirational, very focused chief executive who knew exactly what the vision was for the organization. There was some major transformation, not just for the organization, but actually for the mission of the organization. I was working with a group of people at senior level who were deeply committed, really passionate about the work they did and the impact it would have uh, on the people that they were there to serve. I was directly involved in staff engagement and working very closely with staff across the whole, so 500 staff at that point across the whole organisation, helping to lead this transformational change and absolutely um, getting the most amazing grounding in the fact that those staff were the people that were closest to the work and they knew what the changes were that needed to happen and they actually had ideas and those ideas were then being listened to by the leadership team. And I suppose the fourth element of it was that in, a, in that very small team with absolutely no resource, no money to spend on campaigning or, or, or lobbying government or, you know, engaging with, with, with policymakers, we actually, we literally did change the world. We, we led the campaign to change the way emergency ambulance services uh, responded to patients. And as a result, national standards were changed there's a whole again whole long story about that which we could take an entire podcast and then some to talk through um but it really showed me that you put those elements together that clear vision that real openness to hearing what people are saying being very very um very receptive of other people's ideas that shared commitment through a whole organization and that determination to make the world a better place. And you really can change the world. And to have that, I mean, I was, I don't know, early 30s, very early 30s at that point. My first real role in a proper organisation, you know, in my career, I'd, I'd, I'd run my own consultancy. I'd done, I'd done various other 
pieces of freelance support work and what have you for, for previous sort of six, seven years. And I'd found myself in this, in this situation, in this, in this context. And it was mind-blowing. And I've never forgotten it. And every single thing I have done since then has drawn on that. And especially, and I think particularly now where I am now, that absolute knowledge that you can change the world you actually can change the world. I have met people, I have talked to people whose lives were saved because of the work we did there. And when you've had those conversations with them and with their families, you never lose sight of the fact that actually some things are, are actually doable. And I think that, you know, if I bring that forward to where, where we are now and my role in the sector and my experience of working in the sector over the last six years, you know, that is the thing that drives all of us, isn't it? That's what we're here to do. So, yeah, very, very powerful experience. And I, I have always counted myself incredibly lucky to have had that so early on in my career because I've had some other experiences of leadership, it has to be said, along the way that haven't necessarily been so so positive. And it feels as though if I hadn't had that one to begin with, I might have had a very different view of leadership and the journey towards leadership, whether I even wanted to, to go on that journey. So very, very fortunate, I think. So that was a real turning point in your mm. leadership wasn't it it sounds like that really formed you as a leader were there any other uh experiences along the way which were formative well yes and I think I think in a way what I've just touched on that I think if you are and I and I'll be honest I wasn't at that point I wasn't sitting I've never in my life or in my career sat there and thought yes actually what I want to be is a leader I'm going to learn from this experience you just kind of absorb it by osmosis what you know that's my experience and then you find yourself putting those things into practice and equally I think having had that really good grounding to then find myself in other organizations and other situations where perhaps the leadership wasn't so positive where perhaps there wasn't that that fundamental trust in other people or that openness to hearing other ideas or just some you know some really basic quite poor leadership management skills by the same token you 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 don't at, at the time when you're working in that environment you just do what you can to work through it but i think later you can reflect back on it and think actually i've learned from that as well that's a mistake i need to try not to make i'm not saying i won't make it at least there's an awareness of it. There's an awareness of what impact that can have on other people because it's, it's kind of the classic thing of lived experience, isn't it? You've, you've, you've had some of that experience. And so you can, if you take that time to reflect on it and think about that in your leadership practice, you think, okay, why did that not? It's not just, oh, that didn't work, I'll do it differently. It's trying to understand why that didn't work, why, what was driving that particular leader to, to act in that particular way or to say things in that way um, or to behave in a way that was not inclusive or was actually actively excluding in some ways, for example. Um, and, and, and where are my risk factors in that? What am I, where are my blind spots? Um, and that's quite a, quite a difficult thing to do, I think, but it's, it is something that I think... Um, the more you can find time to do that, the more valuable it is. So I have learned a lot from, you know, some of those other less positive experiences as well, I think, along the way. And they can be almost even more informative and valuable, can't they, than when mm -hmm. things have gone really well? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, there's a, there's a conversation I remember having with um, one of my former chief executives when I was in a very senior role. Um, and it's just one very small example, but we were doing my appraisal 
you know, and it was sort of, you know, so Jane, you know, where do you see yourself going? And at that point, I had started to think, well, actually, you know, I'd quite like to, um, you know, perhaps think about a chief exec role at some point. And I said this to my then chief executive and she, it was a woman, said, no, you'll never be a chief executive. And it was, it was, oh, okay. And it was, it was, it was an interesting moment, all sorts of ways, because I think what it, what it actually was, was it reflected her view of what a chief executive looked like. And in her experience, a chief executive came from either a director of operations role uh, or a finance role. Um, which obviously wasn't me. You know, I was from the soft, fluffy side of, you know, communications and stakeholder engagement and people. Um, so I, in her world, I just didn't fit that that um, that template, if you like. And when I reflected on it afterwards, I thought that, apart from anything else, I think that told me a lot about her experience of having become a chief executive. And actually, it kind of opened up a window for me into her whole management style. Because I think in common with a lot of women leaders in particularly in the big public sector organisations, there was a whole generation, I hope this is now changing, I think it is, but there was a whole generation who had been the first women to be put into those roles of leadership, but they'd very much been trained that you have to do it like the men do. Um, So that in a whole, you know, piece of reflection for me was a really interesting space. And, you know, and also there was just that basic human thing of, right, oh, right, okay, so you think I can't do this? Well, actually, maybe I can, you know, because I've always been a little bit arsey like that. Somebody tells me I can't do something, I probably will try. So, you know, I, I can't say that it was it was directly a trigger for me getting to the place I am now, but I have always felt very aware that given my softer skills background, um, I actually don't think I would have had the chance to take on that most senior leadership role in any other sector than than ours because um you know the charity sector or the civil society sector seem to be so much more open and does seem to be so much more open to a variety of backgrounds than perhaps the more traditional bigger systems are so yeah so interesting stuff from in terms of reflecting on some of those things and I'm outraged on on your behalf, Jane, because I think that's such a terrible. No, it really is. It's such a terrible, yeah. crushing thing to say. And also, she was wrong. Well, she was wrong. Yes, she, she she was. I proved her wrong, definitely. Um, but yes, I think, and I think that's the other thing. So it, it, it's also something. You know, as I say, it's one tiny conversation out of a whole range of conversations. And this was, I don't know, fifteen years ago, probably now. But it did stay with me, and. I I certainly have absolutely adopted the principle in any conversation I have with any younger um, professional person, you know, whatever age they might be, wherever they're at in their career. If they have the courage to share with me what their aspirations are, I will never, ever tell them they can't do that. I will, I hope absolutely reinforce that aspiration i may talk to them about the realities of the challenges and the difficulties and and some of the things i might think because i think that's really valuable for all you know that's that's what those of us who've been around the block a few times are here to do in many ways but no you know you you just you just can't say to somebody you can't do that but as i say it's um it's just part of the rich tapestry along the way but uh interesting interesting management style i have to say yeah it's it's funny, isn't it? Because a lot of our conversations um, about leadership over the over the thirty odd episodes of this podcast have been 
I wouldn't say, you know, we haven't been speaking to many people with a, a financial background, with the the sort of the nous that traditionally it might have might have been thought of as the skills that a chief executive or a, a or a managing director would would need. And I certainly have experiences of working under the first female CEO of an accountancy firm um, that, uh, you know, in the accountancy world, in the professional services world, you tend to find that partners who have a stake in the organisation also take on leadership roles in in areas that they might not necessarily yep. be expert in. Um, uh, I'm not saying that was the case for her, but it was the case for many people in, in those organisations. Um, and she faced similar challenges to, to that, I think, because her leadership style and the approach that she was taking was so vastly different from what had come before. Ultimately, it was unsuccessful because it didn't necessarily fit into that 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 dynamic. But I think what we're seeing more and more through these conversations is that leadership styles are completely and utterly changing. What it takes to be a leader in 2023 and beyond is going to be completely different um, to what it's what it's been up until. You know, I don't like to say the pandemic has sort of, you know, accelerated these things, but it probably did. Um, mm-hmm. You know, leaders, leaders having to take on a whole bunch of different things that they'd never really thought of before, or at least tackle issues that they'd never had to tackle before, has really shone a light on it. And and yeah, that we we could we should do a, a, a look back at the people we've spoken to and look at their backgrounds. But I imagine that they're very much similar to you. That those softer skills, as you put them, which Zoe and I are also very well steeped in, are the things yes. that are coming to the fore in 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 this era. I think I think you're absolutely right. But in fact, the the, the image that's just appeared in my mind as you were saying that, if if somebody said, you know, what does what does the role of a a leader in the civil society sector look like right now the picture i've got in my head is of somebody male or female standing on a board balancing on a big round ball and trying to sort of just keep everything steady because i think right now and, and certainly over the last two three or two years really and going forward um probably the single most crucial skill for anybody to have in a leadership role is that ability to keep balanced while everything around you is so complex, so challenging, so unexpected, you know, everything, you know, precedented is not a word we use anymore, is it? You know, it's it's sort of, and, and it, these are really choppy, challenging times. And that's that's something we're seeing very directly at Akivo now, you know, in terms of the support we're giving to chief execs. Um, and I think, you know, having, I don't want to make sweeping generalisations. I think if you've had a background or if you have the natural tendency to work more in those sort of soft skill spaces to have that emotional intelligence to to understand that systems and processes and structures are hugely valuable and I, I you know because I'm a bit of a free-flowing person I actually really value having some strong systems and structures around to give me a framework with it within which to work but I think Absolutely. If you're you're in the place where you feel like those systems and structures are the be all and end all and, and they will give you those tram lines and you can work down them and you just keep following that process and it'll work. I, I think you are going to really struggle in, in the current context and, and probably will have done for, in fact, probably haven't, you know, haven't stayed in this in this sort of role, I think, over the last couple of years, because that ability to just take something that comes in completely out of left field, knocks you off balance, and yet you've got to get that balance back again because other people are relying on you your team your staff your volunteers your board and above all your beneficiaries um you know that's a hugely 
specific skill. And I think the same would probably be true in many, many sectors, but there are some very specific um, added pressures and, and different nuances and complexities around working in our, in our sector, clearly, uh, which does make it a bit more challenging, I think. And what other skills do you think leaders need to keep really sharp right now? Um, <sighs> time management, she says, thinking I've just been looking at my diary for the next month and I've no idea, you know, there is no time to breathe, which is ridiculous. Um, but I think genuinely, I think I think actually that that in a way kind of goes to a slightly deeper point, which is, is and I don't know if it's a skill or if it's a trait or if it's a thing that we have to do, but we have got to find the ways to carve out time to think. We have got to find the ways to carve out time to breathe. We've got to say no to things. Um, something I've been saying to members and again, haven't yet quite taken on board myself is, in a world that is constantly asking us to do more, we have to be able to say no to some things because we cannot just keep doing more. We are seeing, um, you know, we are seeing chief execs in, in our sector and, and leaders in our sector getting way too close to burnout or beyond, um, you know, and that's not sustainable for them or for their organisations or for the sector as a whole. So, you know, that's a real worry. So I think having that ability to know when there's a little voice at the back of your head that's saying, wait, pay attention. If you don't take that thing out of the diary, if you aren't paying attention to the fact that you're getting really anxious about something that's happening three weeks ahead because you know you haven't got time to prepare for it. If you don't do something about it, you're gonna you are going to be the one that pays the price. Um, I think that's really important. I think the ability, and that kind of then feeds into if you don't create that space for yourself. If I go back to that that first chief executive that I worked with, um, you know, one of the things that I remember him saying very early on to me was, my job is to think, and I've got 500 people in this team that will help me think, and that was exactly why he was so open to other people's thinking and ideas. But, but I think we, again, particularly if you're in the smaller end of the sector, well, I suppose it's true at every, every level, but particularly at the smaller end of the sector where, you know, you are the classic chief cook and bottle washer, if you are not allowed the time to think, all you will ever do is firefight and your organisation will only ever be able to, to see a very short horizon point. And I think actually that's something that's just as important for boards and chairs to take on board as it is for the chief execs to because they have a role, they have a really important role in ensuring and encouraging and in some cases really urging their chief exec to take that time to think because nobody else is in that position to do it it's it's the you know what can you do that nobody else can do pigs and then i think the the third bit i think that goes alongside that time to think is the ability and the resource in terms of time and capacity to invest in the relationships that matter in making your organization function and whether that's your staff or whether that's your senior management team or whether that's your volunteers or whether it's your stakeholders or your funders or your beneficiaries, you know, every chief exec will have their own context for that. But I said something in a, in a newsletter to our members very recently about you can only you can only travel at the speed of trust, you know, and we're all in the business of making things change. We're all in the business of making the world a better place. We're all in the business of bringing others together to 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 deliver on our mission. And so actually investing in that time that is probably the single 
most important thing you can do with your time. And one of the things that I'm finding really interesting, and I'm, I, you know, now that I've into my third chief exec role and perhaps have a bit more capacity to reflect on it, is sometimes the smallest thing in your week, you know, the half hour you spend in that one-to-one call with somebody or, you know, the the 20 minutes you spend just planning ahead for, you know, when you're going to be meeting with people or whatever it is, that might be the single most impactful thing you do all week. So forget all the big fancy meetings and all the, you know, I'm going to write this blog or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do whatever it is. It's it's sometimes it's those smallest things that are actually the mo- the single most productive thing. And if you can identify what those are in terms of you helping helping you to deliver your mission, then you can actually focus your energies in a in a much more productive and constructive way and a much more sustainable way as well. Yeah, totally agree with that. Um, even in running my own small business, it's those times where you think, right, no, take stock, move away from the screen. Um, and I have a particular issue. I don't know whether Zoe feels the same, but I have a particular issue with moving away from the screen. Mm-hmm. I sort of look at those times in the diary where I think now I need to take two hours to go and do something with the kids or something like that as, oh my God, what's going to happen in that downtime? But mm-hmm. nine times out of 10, coming back to the screen after that couple of hours or that half hour or whatever, there's much greater clarity okay. to move things on. Do you know what? The world didn't collapse whilst you were away yeah. doing that thinking. So I, I completely agree. And it brings me to the, the there was a point you made, I think, in the um, third sector interview you did recently where you know, you said your job as a as a chief exec is to enable other people to to do their own work, to do their own brilliant work. And I think that's a, a, a thing that I always think, what's my role in this? My role is yes. to enable everyone else, not not sort of further my own uh, yes. goals here. Exactly that. And and I've been struck over the last few years. Um, I think there's a there's a there's a challenge, and especially if you have come from you know a varied background, you don't necessarily had that sort of leadership development training that you might have done in in other sectors or whatever it might be. I think many of us feel um, this, I'm trying to find the right way of expressing this, but there's there's a sort of a psychological aspect to all of this that there's a sort of feeling of a we don't really quite know how to do the job. You know, let's be honest. You know, most of us are trying to work it out as we go along. Um, so then there's that, I wouldn't quite call it imposter syndrome, I wouldn't go that far, but I think I think there's an element of how do I get this right? How do I get this? And 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 then I think the danger is that you fall into that trap of thinking that to get it right for other people, you have to be doing all these things and you have to be, you know, turning up for all these meetings and you have to be creating all these agendas and you have to be, do, you know, doing stuff, you know, practical, actual work that can be seen. And actually, one of the things I've learned is that your team, nine times out of 10, will be the first ones to say, we don't want you doing that. We want (laughs) you going out, being the leader, taking that time to think, giving us the guidance, giving us that direction, schmoozing the stakeholders, chatting up the funders, you know, whatever it is that, that actually, again, goes back to what can only you do. Now, it may be that partly there's an element of that because, let's face it, we've all been there having a chief executive that's getting a little bit too into the detail and, and and creating more work as a result is not a great thing to have. But I actually think there's also, there is a wisdom in our teams that they understand that there is a role that is uniquely played by the leader of the organisation. And that actually, if that role is not played well, that becomes a very uncomfortable place for all sorts of reasons. And so they have a vested interest in us 
doing it right. And again, part of the challenge is, you know, literally on a day by day, minute by minute basis, judging which, you know, if you're balancing that board on top of that ball, you know, which way are you looking? Where are you turning? Inevitably, if you're looking in one direction, you're going to be missing something else, you know, and having that peripheral vision is is hugely valuable. But again, that's why you need the investment in relationships with your teams and the people around you, because they're the people that will say, wait, Jane, you've missed this bit. You know, there's somebody over there that really needs a conversation with you. And and creating that 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 sense of trust and that again that openness to being told when you've got something wrong or you're at risk of getting something wrong is again incredibly important we we can't we cannot do this work by ourselves that's really what it comes down to you know people talk a lot about leadership as being a very isolating role and it can be it can be a very lonely place but that doesn't mean it's a job you can do in isolation Mm. um it's absolutely not a job you can do in isolation and and you have to have people around you that help you do your job better and you have to be open to that and you have to give them the the space in order to be able to do that as well there's a strong football analogy here if Zoe will let me share it she, <laughs> she knows I like to get football well, we are in the middle of the world cup aren't we so yes yeah <laughs> Well, it just stri- strikes me that that strikes me that um, I support a team who have a, a a striker meant to score the goals. That's mm-hmm. that's the job, right? Of a striker is yeah. meant to score the goals. And there's been a big question about why he hasn't scored one for nine games or ten games in a row or something like that. And should we be panicked? Should we be worrying? What he does is he draws other players onto him. He takes the heat off the players elsewhere. He creates the spaces. He enables everything to open up and, and creates those opportunities for others to shine and step forward. So he might not yeah. have scored any goals, but you can point out every single opportunity that he's given somebody else just by being there. And I think yeah. that's the, the, the sort of the role of, of, of leaders and chief execs. I think you're absolutely right. And of course, the, the, the challenge in that is we do have not, again, not anything like as much as I've seen in, in the public sector, but there is inevitably and quite rightly there's a there's an element of how do i how do i demonstrate what i've achieved how do i how do i show you my chair that i'm actually having impact and it's quite difficult and again i think it comes back to chairs and boards having a a rather more subtle understanding of actually what they're looking for their chief exec and their senior team to do because appreciating and evaluate uh, evaluate valuing sorry get my words out appreciating and valuing the role of a catalyst, of a, of a convener, of an enabler, is much harder to measure than evaluating the role of somebody on the basis of how much income have they generated or how many, you know, service services have they delivered or whatever it is that you might be measured on. So I think there's some. So again, I come back to this is not not just about the role of the chief executive; it's about everybody across the whole piece. But your your football analogy just reminded me of. of um, uh, a graphic that I, I and I wish I knew who it was that had created it because I would absolutely give them credit and I don't even know who was, that shared it with me but it was on social media very very recently and I shared it with my team because it's um, the thing about is, is your role to be an umbrella or a funnel you know and if you're an umbrella you are protecting your team from all this crap that's raining down if you're a funnel you're you're taking it and you're showering it down onto them and you know that just felt very very timely um, because certainly, you know, what we're experiencing at Akivo is the pressures of trying to, you know, trying to deliver, making sure we've got the capacity, increasing need and so on. 
and absolutely knowing that that is a tiny microcosm of what our members are experiencing or many of our members are experiencing. And so, you know, we see what's happening for them. We see what's happening at the, at the very sharp end of the sector. Um, and I think to some degree as an organisation, we have to try and act as an umbrella for them as well and, and try to protect them from, 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 from some of that stuff that's coming, coming at everybody because it is, it is a really difficult time right now. It really is challenging, isn't it? And there are two final issues we'd, we'd love to explore with you on those challenges before we wrap up today. Obviously, one of the, the big conversations and the big changes we've seen over the last couple of years is that rightly that focus on inclusion that we're seeing across the sector right now. Um, what, what's your advice to leaders who are trying to move forward on that journey? Um, don't stop is the first thing. Um, and by that, I think what I mean is, it's funny, I was thinking about this earlier this morning. If, if, if we think about the journey of our sector towards inclusion, you know that, you know that graphic of, of the, um, the evolution of man, you know, that starts with the, you know, the very, very low level and gradually. I think we're probably about two steps into that journey. You know, we've got a very, very long way to go. Um, we've hardly even scratched the surface. I think we we've got um I think in in brutal terms, what we've got is a, is an awareness that this should be on the agenda. I don't think there's many people now, and even that has changed since I first came into the sector. So literally just in the last five, six years, and obviously 2020 um and Black Lives Matter was a big part of getting it onto the agenda. But I think also the work of some of the campaigning groups like Charity So White, Charity So Straight um so many of the other you know grassroots campaigners that that are, are out there trying to influence the sector are doing phenomenal work um but awareness is really only the start we have obviously we've got a few i would say a very small proportion of our sector have done some real work on this and have, have made real inroads we've got a lot more who are trying you know they know they need to they they are they are genuinely in the right place in terms of intent but I think there is a very real barrier in the sense of people being very unsure as to how to do it still you know and and there isn't a we haven't yet reached a stage I don't know if we ever will where there's a where there's a you know here's the manual of how to do this right and what you need to understand and what you need to learn and this is how you change the way you think and this is how you support your teams and, and all those sorts of things it's a it's a very very complex area and I, a good friend of mine Lucy Straker, who's one of the uh, driving forces behind Charity So Straight, who I worked with years ago at NAFCA, and I've learned more from her about inclusion than anybody. Um, and she has always said, it is a journey, not a destination. However far you go, there is always going to be further. And I think the big challenge in that for most of us as leaders in the sector is how do we keep a focus on that while balancing on this board on the ball you know as i said you're looking in one direction something else you're missing and when you're when you're trying to think about um resourcing and you're trying to think about cost of living crisis and you're trying to think about how you support your staff it's very easy to let some of that diversity work slip and i'll give you a, a, a really concrete example that we've we've been talking about in our own team you know at, at akiva we we have a very real very deep commitment to this work we 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 have done some work around thought leadership we can i hope we've contributed our part to that 
Um, but internally, you know, we we are facing the same challenges as so many are about recruitment. We've got I we're very fortunate. I have a hugely diverse team, the most diverse team I've ever worked with. Um, but as we're going through the process of recruiting new staff, I know that there is a real risk, and we've identified it as a risk and we're mitigating it, but there is a real risk that you slip back into, but we've got to get somebody, we've got to get somebody really good. We're not getting it through our normal, slightly longer-winded, you know, more inclusive processes, but there's somebody over there that we know would do the job really well, so we'll just go and grab them, which is the classic old, you know, old-school um approach to recruitment and so that for me is a perfect example of how we have to make sure we tr- we we do everything we can to maintain that hard work even when you're under real pressure because if we don't it will continually slip back i think the same is true around climate you know the two biggies and they compete in some ways although actually they're very closely interrelated in in many other ways are climate and edi and keeping that focus in the middle of everything else is one of the biggest challenges I think we all have. It really is, isn't it? And I know when you and I spoke a few weeks ago, we talked about how leaders can sustain and build on change and some of the positive developments over the last couple of years. So is that the main thing that you would advise leaders on those and other challenging areas where that commitment is needed to stay focused? Or is there anything else that you'd add uh-huh. to that advice? I think everything else follows from that, because obviously, if you're by definition, if you're not focused on it, you're not going to be doing anything. But I think as well, do you know what, Zoe? I'm actually going to hesitate to answer that question because I think it's really, really, really important that I, as a white middle class leader, don't pretend that I have the answers, because the most important thing I can do is engage with and listen to others from the communities of experience who actually know way better than I do what needs to change. So I'm not going to sit here and say, actually, as leaders, what we should do is X, Y, and Z. What I'm going to say is, as leaders, what we have to do is listen to those other experiences, whatever our background, you know, and, I, and I'm and i very conscious that clearly not everybody listening to this podcast is going to be coming from a white middle class background. That's That's brilliant and 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 but we all have other areas where we don't have that experience so how we tap into that how we listen which I guess kind of again comes right the way back to that first point I made about being open to what other people can contribute and hearing those voices and being I was going to say humble I'm not sure that's quite the right word but having that authenticity that understands that you don't know it all even when sometimes it feels like people expect you to know it all, you have to be clear that you don't know it all and that you need other people to to educate you, to inform you, to guide you, to lead you, particularly on these very difficult and challenging but absolutely essential journeys. And being willing to show some vulnerability. Totally. That. I mean, that's a real act of courage as a leader, isn't it, to say, I don't have the answers to this, but I'm going to yes. listen, I'm going to learn. Absolutely. And and if we don't do that, you know, there's all this, oh, Zoe, that's a whole other podcast, you know, what, what, what have you got another hour, Jay? Oh, <laughs> of course I have, Zoe. Did I not mention my diary? Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, there, there are so many things about life. If, if we aren't willing to show our vulnerability, first of all, 
we don't we don't get the benefit of learning we don't get the benefit of other people's input secondly we are presenting a very wrong model to those who are looking at us who are learning from us go back to everything we said earlier on you know we all learn our leadership style effectively from the leaders around us and if we're if we're trying to if we're modeling a, a view that no you know i am right whether i'm wrong or not i'm still right what's the value of that how healthy is that for a sustainable sector um and we're not enabling those who are in a different space to develop their own leadership skills by contributing I've, i learned so much by listening to younger people in our sector um you know i mentioned lucy as an example you know others as well who who give me so much in terms of their fierce brave challenging radical thinking that if I wasn't open to hear, I'd, I'd have just missed so much, you know. And what's the fun in that? What's the fun in that? There's no, there's, there's, there's no pleasure in in missing out on things like that. So, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Jane. It's been brilliant to hear about your experience of how you've grown and developed as a, a leader, and also about all the fantastic work that you're leading at Akiva and your take on what's going on across the sector right now. So, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Absolute pleasure, Zoe. And I think in line with everything else, whatever I've learned now, I'm still on that journey. I've still got a long way to go. So, you know, we all go on that journey together, which is great. So we should arrange part two in a couple of years. time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get it in the diary now is all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we might have to. Uh, thank you very much. That was great. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to Jane for a fabulous discussion. Uh, There was so much that I learned from that. And in particular, I loved her point about how vulnerability in leaders is a real strength and how it's actually even more important that we do that in the charity sector because it sets the, the right tone for the kind of leaders we want to be and the kind of world we want to live in. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, she talked about changing the world, didn't she? Um, And we sort of stepped away from that conversation feeling really energised. And then it's also, you know, what can I do to to change things? And just that that comment we've just made about um, uh, Spotify and R&ID, you know, a small spark of um, hope and inspiration coming out of such a uh, a small fun podcast that we love doing. It's it's nice to be able to have a a sort of a knock-on effect every so often. But look, thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll be back right after the Christmas break with more leadership chat through that digital lens. Uh, we have a cracker Christmas pun episode <laughs> for you in uh, of an episode for you in January. Um, we've got two episodes actually out in two weeks. One is um, all about how you can put fun, laughter and joy back into the workplace. And we think that will be out sometime in the second week of, of January. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter. It's still there, right? I think we're still on Twitter at this precise moment. We're we at starts at the top that. one. <laughs> uh, and you can also email us at starts at the top at gmail.com. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, you can rate, review, and subscribe. Please do that. It all helps with our visibility and reach. And we'll speak to you again in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, have a great festive break. Yeah, have a great break, everyone. And we'll speak to you after in January. Bye.